Well, thank you guys. That was awesome. Uh, if you have children that are kindergarten to third grade and that want to go down for children's church, they can dismiss out the back with Miss Melody. Um, if you're older than that and you're staying with us, there is a sermon note on the back table designed for you as a child. Uh, if you grab one of those and fill it out, um, I'll have some candy for you uh, in the front. Well, thank you for joining us on this lovely Wyoming morning. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Um, so today we are in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 5. You like to head, head that direction. Um, and one of the, the phrases that we use in our culture a lot, or, and I'm sure you've probably heard, is that the handwriting is on the wall. Uh, and if you've heard that or used it, it means that something bad is about to happen or the future is inevitable and it's usually bad. Uh, for example, when you're watching a sports game and the sportscaster says the handwriting is on the wall, it means something bad is coming. Momentum has shifted or usually the game is over. Well, if you've ever wondered where that phrase comes from, it comes from right here in Daniel chapter 5. And we're going to see why in just a second. Daniel 5 takes place in the year 539 B.C. We're now nearly 70 years after Daniel and his friends uh, were initially taken uh, into captivity from Israel to the nation of Babylon. When we left last week in Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and he had just been humbled by God in a profound way that had led him to faith in God. Well, now in Daniel 5, we are 20-plus years since Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. There have been a number of kings that have uh, reigned for short periods of time, and now Belshazzar sits on the throne in Babylon. And one of the fascinating, fascinating things about this story and, and of history is the name Belshazzar. Uh, for hundreds of years, scholars disputed the credibility of the Bible based on this name, Belshazzar. At the time, history said that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, and there was no mention of Belshazzar. And so for hundreds of years, scholars mocked the name and they questioned the Bible because of its presence. Well, in the late, late 1800s, archaeologists discovered the Nabonidus cylinders. And later they transformed, uh, translated the cuneiform cylinders, which are now today in the British Museum. They translated them. And within these cylinders, there was the name Belshazzar. And it described him as king. You see, just a few years prior to this time, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had moved to Arabia and left his son as the co-regent or the king of Babylon. And I just love that because time and time again, this is the story of the historicity of the Bible. There are so many examples of where scholars have pointed to details and said the Bible cannot be trusted because it's not true and because there's discrepancies between our known history and what the Bible says. But time and time again, new evidence has been discovered that validates the Bible's account. So it's just fascinating to me. It proves the, that the Bible is trustworthy, that it's accurate, and it is uh, the right book to be the authority in our life. All right, well, let's get to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, but before we do, we're going to pray because we're going to kind of read it in chunks uh, throughout the, the sermon instead of all at the beginning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, get into the passage. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your word is true and that it is a rock that we can stand on and we can rest our lives on. God, we thank you that, that, that um, Lord, as we study this, that we will see the life that you desire to give us in you. We thank you that forgiveness and righteousness and new life and eternal life is available in you. And so, God, my prayer today is that you would just uh, speak to us through this passage of Scripture, Lord, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to what it is you have for us. God, we love you. Uh, we praise you. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship you. It's your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so we're in Daniel chapter 5. We're going to start uh, in verse 1. It reads, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets they had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So the setting here is, is, is Belshazzar is throwing a rager. Uh, the scene is a drunken, debaucherous orgy. And then on top of that, Belshazzar calls for the sacred goblets to be taken uh, from the temple in Jerusalem and to be drank from. And so Belshazzar is not only throwing a wild party, but he gathers those sacred things and makes them a part of this debaucherous scene. He takes the sacred and he blasphemies God by making them a part of the worship of himself and of his gods. The other fascinating thing about this is that history tells us that the Medes and the Persians were known to be close. They were known to be just outside the city walls of Babylon, threatening to invade and overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And Belshazzar's threat to this imminent danger is not to fight back, it's not to make a plan, it's not to retreat, but his response is to throw a party. And so our first point today is this, and that is that human nature's response to death is to party or to ignore. In the face of imminent danger, Belshazzar throws a party. And at first we scoff at that, we, we scratch our head and we say, why? But the reality is we so often do the same thing. We live our lives, which we intellectually know are finite. We all know that we will one day die. But for most of us, we live our lives as if death is a reality for everyone but me. We blissfully ignore the reality that one day our lives will come to an end. And in our ignorance, we often fail to deal with the consequences. And so within this point, I want to touch on two reasons that Belshazzar might have responded in this manner in two ways that we do the same. The first reason we in Belshazzar can party in the face of imminent uh, death or this imminent threat is that we all have a false confidence in our own strength. Belshazzar knew the Medes and the Persians were out there, but he didn't believe they could penetrate his city and his defenses. He had a false confidence in his own strength. And this false confidence was for good reason. History tells us the city walls of Babylon were impressive. They were impressive for today, nonetheless more impressive for their day. The walls were 17 miles long. They were 22 feet thick. They were 90 feet high with guard towers that stood another feet, another 100 feet higher than that. In addition, their gates were ma weren't made of wood, but they were made of bronze, which held up against fire or even battering rams. And then within those walls, there was a sophisticated system of inner walls and moats, which made the city uh, incredibly secure. So although the Medes and the Persians were just outside the city walls, he said, party on, because they can't possibly penetrate my strength. And friends, we do the same thing, and it's so often only when our strength and our defenses are, are, are torn down or are defeated that we find ourselves open and vulnerable enough to consider God and consider our eternity. We, like Belshazzar, ignore uh, the reality of death by, playing, by placing confidence in our strengths. 
instead of placing our confidence in God, we place our confidence in our job or our bank account or our retirement account or our health or our intellect or our family or, or our past accomplishments, whatever it is. We look to these things as our source of comfort and we believe ourselves invincible. But like Belshazzar and his wall, and like Belshazzar and his wall, we believe because of our health or what's in the bank account that nothing can touch us. We trust in the God of self instead of the God of the universe. And within that, we see our second reason that Belshazzar and we ourselves can party in the face of death. And that is that we ignore its reality and live as if we are invincible. So our second point is this. We distract ourselves from our real problems. This is what we do. We, we seek any outlet to distract ourselves from the real problems, from the danger on the horizon, from the emptiness of our soul, from the finiteness of our humanity. And as Americans, we are incredible at this. I mean, there are whole industries built around distracting us from reality. Drugs and alcohol allow us the ability to escape for a few minutes or hours. Television, streaming services, shopping, vacation, hobbies, recreation allow us to leave our troubles behind for a time. We, like Belshazzar, prefer to party in order to distract from what matters. And, of course, the greatest, of those is the, the greatest threat of those things is the reality of our souls and our eternity. There are so many that, we, that so distract ourselves or themselves from the, by the things of the world that we fail to deal with the one thing that ultimately matters. We ignore the reality of death, of our finiteness, by distracting ourselves with the trivial. French uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal said the most consistent human reaction to unpleasant thoughts about their mortality is distracting themselves with amusement. Instead of facing the reality, we ignore it and we focus on the trivial. In our culture, we don't even like to utter the word death. Instead, we use pleasant phrases like passing on, rest in peace, gone to the other side. We go to funerals and, and we're sad, but then we immediately leave not to wrestle with our own mortality, but instead to drink or eat our sadness away. We go and don't process but distract. Pascal said life is like being in a stagecoach that is barreling towards a cliff. You know the cliff is coming and you can't stop the stagecoach or get out. But instead of thinking of your coming death and what it means for your future, your family, your eternity, you instead distract yourself with observations about the beautiful scenery along the way. Or you ignore the imminent by engaging in pleasant conversations with fellow passengers. So perhaps Belshazzar knew the end was coming, but he was blissfully ignoring the consequences by distracting himself with food, drink, sex, and the worship of himself and his gods. He said, if the end is coming, we might as well enjoy tonight. But we do the same thing, probably not quite as blatantly, but we do. Jewish atheist and philosopher Ernst Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, wrote, human beings cannot live in full, honest awareness of the meaning of death. We can't handle the uncertainty of death, the fallout of death, the finality of death, the reality that this world could one day move on without us and forget us. And so we ignore the reality and we focus on the trivial or we focus on the worship of ourselves. Hebrews 9.27 says that man is destined to die once. We, like Belshazzar, know what the end is. He knew the date. We don't. But we know the inevitable one day come. And so we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves the question, are we ready for eternity? We only have one life to live. Are we prepared for eternity when it ends? We all have a void and emptiness in our soul. The same Blaise Pascal described it as a God-sized hole in our hearts that only he can fill. 
Are we filling that void with the things of the world and distracting ourselves from the reality of our emptiness? Or have we found our hope and our future in God alone? Stories like this force us to pause and consider our eternity. We'll continue to see that today. Along the same lines, if you're a follower of Jesus are you, and you are ready for eternity, then what are you living for? Are you living for the temporal, for earthly pleasures, for your glory, for your prestige? Or are you living for God's kingdom and things that will last for eternity? We see here that, the only, that only one thing ultimately matters, and that is what we do with God. But God isn't just a get-out-of-hell card, but he desires to be the Lord of our life. The thing that we live our lives primarily for. Is God Lord? And are you living for that which will last for eternity? Charlie Hall in the late 90s and early 2000s had a worship song that, that captures this principle for me. And as a teenager, really captured my heart. And the song would end with this powerful uh, chorus that, that repeated itself again and again. The ending was, all of life comes down to just one thing. And that's to know you, O oh Jesus, and make you known. I love that. And that's what we see here. All of life ultimately comes down to one thing. And that's what you do with Jesus. It doesn't matter how much money you gave to good causes, how hard you worked, what school you went to, how nice your children were, how much was in your bank account, or what car you drove. All that matters is what you did with Jesus. Did you know him? And if you did know Jesus, then all that will ultimately matter is, did you make him known? Did you love others as he did? Did you point people to him? Did you raise your kids and love your spouse and point them to Jesus? Because ultimately, the Bible tells us it is all about him. So Belshazzar and his posse are partying in the face of death. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And a hand appears, and it begins writing on the wall. We're in verse 5. It says, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in his royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Belshazzar believed his city, his empire was impenetrable. That he was, the, he was the second most powerful man in the world. But something just happened that made him weak in the knees. This isn't normal, right? Have you ever seen a hand writing on the wall? He knows it is company, coming from something much more powerful than him. And so once again, his first instinct we see is to turn to the wise men, the philosophers, the things of this world. And once again, they fail to understand or provide meaningful insight. We've seen this over and over in the book of Daniel. And the application for us today is to not turn to the world and its philosophers, but instead to turn to God and his wisdom through scripture and prayer. Our hope doesn't rest in politics, humanism, Google, science, or anything else. Our hope, our future rests in God. So in all moments, God ought to be the first place we turn. Well, the wise men, they don't know the answers. And the queen remembers a man named Daniel who once upon a time understood and interpreted dreams. 
So Daniel is called and he is promised uh, great rewards and promotion to third in charge in the kingdom, which is significant historically because that's the highest ranking he could pass out because Belshazzar himself was second to his dad. And to all of it, Daniel says, no, thank you, but I will interpret the writing for you anyway. And then Daniel starts preaching. We're in verse 18. It says, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So he recaps at Daniel chapter 4, verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in, your, you know, holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he, God, sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris or parson is just a different uh, verb form of that. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So this leads to our second big point, and that is this, and that is that the writing on the wall is for each of us. The finger of God arrives at the party and delivers this message to Belshazzar, but the same message is laid out to all of mankind throughout the Bible. Mene, your days are numbered. We already talked about this earlier, but the Bible says every man, every woman has been appointed to die once. Our lives are finite. They are numbered. Jesus tells us that we can't add a single day to our lives by worrying. David in the Psalms tells us that God knows our days and how many we have. Our days are numbered, and God holds them in, our, in his hands. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. This is the imagery of those balance scales. You know those like plastic, cheap plastic ones that every elementary school has? And you put different things on the different sides, and you see which one weighs more? Or you can put the weights on there and try to get that perfect balance. But this is the imagery, except on one side of the scales is God's holiness and his perfection, his righteousness. And on the other side is us and all of our sin. And the Bible says only one sin on our part will leave us wanting and will separate us from God. There is no way we can measure up to God's holiness. We like to believe that God weighs our good versus our bad. That's what pop culture tells us. But he weighs us compared to himself. And every person, the Bible says, comes up short because we're all sinners. And because we are all sinners, a perfect Holy, blameless God cannot be in our presence. And so we are all like Belshazzar. We come up short. Parson, your kingdom, your life will be taken from you. 
The Bible says that all have sinned, and the wage or the cost of our sin is eternal, or eternal death separated from God. Paul in Romans declares, for there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The message for Belshazzar and for us is mene, mene, tekel, parson. Our days are numbered. We have come up short in our sin, and the wage of that is death. Our eternity with God has been broken. Our life has been taken from us. So that's the message. That's, that's the message for us. And that would be a pretty rough place to end the sermon right here. But there is hope. And that hope is Jesus, who claimed himself to have the finger of God at work in him. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our condition is we come up short and we are destined from, for death apart from God as sinners. But God so loves us, he so loves you and me, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loves you that he died for you. Our sin leaves us wanting, but God in his love sends Jesus to die the death that our sin deserves. We said it earlier, the wage, the consequence, the penalty for our sin, for my sin, is death. But God in his love sends Jesus to live the sinless life we could not live. And then he allows him to die the death that my sin and your sin deserve. He dies that death as a substitute for us. He gets the wrath and the death that our sin, my sin, deserves. In exchange, he gives us his sinlessness, his righteousness, his life. So that when God puts us on the scales, he sees not our sin, but instead the sinlessness and righteousness of Jesus. Jesus' death has covered our sin and left us sinless and no longer wanting before a holy and sinless God. The, the gospel declares that we are lacking, that we are sinners, that we are hopeless in our own power. But then the gospel proclaims that Jesus offers us forgiveness, new life, Heaven awaits for any who will turn and trust in him. We just must surrender. We must trust him with our life and our future and ask for forgiveness. You see, one of the great sins of Belshazzar is that he knew of the one true God. He knew of what God had done for Nebuchadnezzar, but he chose in his pride to trust in himself. Look at what Daniel says. He lays out the story of Nebuchadnezzar coming to faith and the power of the one true God. Belshazzar knew this. He had experienced this. He had heard the stories, but he trusted himself. Daniel says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and of stone, who cannot hear, uh, hear or see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life in all your ways. Friends, Jesus gave his life for you. He loves you. He offers forgiveness and new life to you. But you have a choice. You've heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but you, like Belshazzar, have to choose who you will follow and trust. Will you choose to follow Jesus, the one true God, or will you place your faith in yourself, your power, your strength, your wealth, your intellect, whatever it is. 
And the Bible is clear that if you, like Belshazzar, choose, choose to trust in yourself, then mene, mene, kekel, parson is your fate. The Bible is clear that you will one day die, and you will die separate from God in a place the Bible calls hell. But if you will humble yourself like Nebuchadnezzar, if you will humble yourself like Nebuchadnezzar did and put your faith in God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then new life, eternal life, forgiveness, and righteousness is yours. But it takes humility to do so. It takes saying to Jesus, I trust you and your power over myself. It takes saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And so the question for us today is, who have you put your faith in? Have you placed your faith in yourself or have you placed your faith in Jesus? God has made a way. Will you humble yourself and follow after him? The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon concluded his message on this passage this way. He said, I would have every man put himself into the divine scales. These scales are true to a hair. One grain of sand will tip them. On one side of the scale, I would put just one commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. And I invite any man who flatters himself that he has no need of mercy, no need of washing in the blood of Jesus, no need of atonement, to put himself into the scales and see whether he measures up to this just this one command. He goes on, oh, my friends, if we did but weigh ourselves against the very first commandment of the law, we would have to acknowledge ourselves as hopelessly guilty. But then as we begin to drop in the weight of the other commandments until the whole sacred ten are there, there is not a man under the scope of heaven who has anything less to say, but must confess that he is woefully short of the mark. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He said, one day we will give an account to an absolutely holy and perfect God for every unkind thing, every stray thought, every dishonest action we've ever made. He said, your days are numbered. You've been weighed and you've been found deficient. Greer concluded his message on this passage. He said, well, I don't, he said, some of you will say, I don't like a God of judgment like this. He says, but don't you see that he is reaching out to you in mercy like he did Belshazzar? Don't you see how he has filled your life with warning after warning? God doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent and come back to him. The core of Jesus' message was that you can never be good enough to get to heaven. We can never be righteous enough to tip the scales in our favor. So what Jesus has offered is substitution. He has taken the divine judgment in our place. Jesus didn't come to urge us to be better people. He came to give you to take your place under divine judgment because you couldn't be a good enough person. He lived the life you were supposed to live, a perfect life, then died the death you were condemned to die, paying the price for your sin. And so when you receive him onto your side of the scales, God puts the righteousness of Jesus. And on the other side, he takes away any bit of condemnation that came from your sin. So there is nothing left on that scale. That means that if you are in Jesus on the scales of God's justice, you are no longer deficient. And there is nothing in eternity that could ever tip the scales of justice against you. Because on your side is the eternally weighty righteousness of Jesus. The gospel is you can't do it, but Jesus has. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, would you trust him today? Would you surrender and put your faith in him today? 
You could do that with a surrendered, humbled heart today. You can humble yourself and pray something as simple as this. God, I know that I have sinned. I've done things that go against you. I know that I am unable in my power to earn my way to you. I know the Bible says I deserve death and separation from you, but I also know that you love me, that you came to earth and you lived a sinless life I couldn't live. I know that you died the death my sin deserved, and I know you rose again three days later. Jesus, I believe that you are God and you paid the price for my sin. I surrender my life, my future to follow you and to walk in your forgiveness in life. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for your life. The Bible says if you pray something like that with a humbled and surrendered heart, then you will be forgiven. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God is faithful to forgive if you turn and follow after him. Have you or will you surrender and follow him today? If you've done that today, would you please tell me or someone else? We would love to help you as you begin to follow Jesus. If you have questions about who Jesus is and why you would follow him, then please come and talk with me and ask those questions. It would be my joy to share with you more. All right. Let's wrap up Daniel 5 with a a truth that is incredibly comforting and fitting for our world's events today. Uh, Verse 29, it says, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then we learn that it didn't last very long. Verse 30, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So while Daniel provides us a a fairly brief account of how this unfolds, extra biblical history fills in the details. The Greek historian Herodotus gives us great detail about this night. He tells us once again of the greatness of the Babylonians' walls, but he also tells us that the Medes and the Persians had diverted the Euphrates River, which flowed underneath the walls of Babylon into a marsh. And as the waters lowered, the soldiers were able to wade the river under the walls and into the city. Historian Xenophon adds that this happened on a night when the Babylonians were engaged in drunken revelry. And cites this as the reason they chose to attack that specific night. And then they note that the king was executed and the Medes and the Persians took over. And so we see two powerful truths in the end of the Babylonian Empire. First, we see that God is sovereign over the nations and man's, and even man's most powerful leaders. God is sovereign over the nations and their leaders. What, what a great truth for right now in our world. Right now, our world feels like it is in chaos. Our leaders seem to be lacking. Some seem to be evil. And it's hard to even find information we can trust. That can be completely overwhelming. But there's great comfort in this. God is sovereign, and he is in control, and we can pray and trust it to him. Job 12, 23 says, God makes the nations rise and fall. We can trust the world, the events, the leaders, our lives to God because he is sovereign, and he is in control. Friends, it's not bad to be informed, but don't let the news of the world and of politics control your life. Turn off the news, pray for our world, pray for our leaders, live your life, love your family, love your neighbor, and point them to God. Control what you can control. God is sovereign over the world, and it can be trusted to him. And I trust me, I I preach this uh, preaching to myself. I know these past few weeks or 10 days or whatever, I have struggled to turn off the news about the war in Ukraine. Right? Every morning I struggle to turn off uh, uh, the one I watch is Fox Business. I love the Barney and Company, the guy with the British accent. 
I could watch the market watch all day. I could watch Sports Center on loop. So I have to intentionally choose to trust those things out of my control to God and be responsible for my life and the things God has placed in my realm of influence. The reality is Putin, Biden, and Zelensky aren't calling me. So I don't need to carry those burdens. I can pray and trust them to God. God is sovereign. He holds the nations and the leaders in his hands. We can trust those to him. Last thing we see here is that God is just and he can be trusted with justice. For those living in Babylon, it had to have been difficult seeing all of these people who were doing evil things seemingly getting away with it all and being rewarded for it. That had to have been frustrating. and They had to have asked, where are you, God? But we see throughout Daniel that God was with them. He knew what was going on. He gave abundant opportunity for people to repent, and he had justice covered. And so our point is we can trust justice to God. God has not given me the responsibility to seek vengeance and to be the world's enforcer of justice. So I can trust that to God. When world leaders fail and do evil, I can pray and trust them to God. When people fail me, when they hurt me, when they betray, it hurts and it hurts bad. But God has not placed the burden of revenge or vengeance on me. But instead, he tells us that he sees and he knows it all. and He has justice covered. Paul in Romans 12 writes, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. Friends, we are free from seeking revenge because we serve a God who has it covered. We can pray and turn those hurts, those pains, those betrayals over to God because he says it is his to repay. God is a God of justice and we can let go and trust those things and those people to him through prayer. And that frees us to try and move on and to forgive. Now, that's way, way easier said on a Sunday morning than done. But that truth is foundational to the process. God is sovereign, and he is just, and he has justice covered. So that's where you are today. Then pray. Pray for God to heal your heart. Pray for God to move in that other person's heart. And pray for God to give you the freedom to forgive. Spend time reading the scriptures about God's character, his forgiveness in your life, and his promise of justice. Remind yourself of who God is, his love, his forgiveness, his justice, and the forgiveness you've experienced. And when those hurts and pains and betrayal come to mind, intentionally turn them to God instead of dwelling on them and seeking revenge. Trusting them to him and trusting him to begin healing your heart. God is sovereign. He is in control. And he is a God of justice, and it can be trusted to him. Give him your hearts and your pains and seek his forgiveness in your life and to be a bearer of that forgiveness to others. Melinda's going to come as we wrap up Daniel chapter 5. This is quite a passage and quite a story. uh, And I think it surely hits us in different places. But the writing on the wall is that of Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Our days are numbered. The Bible tells us we have come up short, and that our life and our kingdom will come to an end. So the question we all have to ask ourselves today is where have we placed our faith in our future? Have we trusted our eternity to Jesus? Have we trusted it to ourselves? The Bible is quite clear. If we trust our eternity to ourselves, then we come up short. 
But if we trust it to Jesus, then it is secure. It is promised. It is good. We are forgiven and we are made righteous in him. So today, if you're not sure or you have never trusted your life to Jesus, would you surrender? Would you follow after him today? Just a second. We're going to, Melinda's going to play and and we're just going to take some time just to bow our heads and pray. You could surrender your life in your seat today. You can come and talk with me if you'd like. It'd be our joy to help you make that decision. And then if you're here and you're a believer in this crazy world that we know too much about, would you today trust God's sovereignty in your life and in this world? Would you let go of those things that are out of your control and trust them to him and invest in the realm and the people he's placed in your life? And then lastly, would you trust forgiveness and justice and vengeance to God? Trust that he is good, that he loves you, that he is able he is all-knowing, and he has it covered. So I'm going to pray for us, and then as, after I pray, Melinda's going to play. I'm just asking you to take a couple minutes just to bow your head and talk with God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible truth that we see in Daniel chapter 5. God, we thank you that while we were found lacking, that while we were found wanting, that while we were found in our sin, you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to live the life we could not live. You sent Jesus to die the death that my sin deserved. And then you gave him the power to rise victorious over death. That you offer that new life, that abundant life, that eternal life, that forgiveness, that freedom to any that will trust in you. God, I pray if there's someone here today that has questions, you give them the courage to ask those questions. If there's someone here that doesn't, has never surrendered, and you are tugging at their heart, Lord, would you give them the courage? to trust you with their future and their life. And God, we thank you for the promises of Daniel chapter 5. We thank you that we have, uh, that our forgiveness is secure in Jesus. We thank you for that. God, we thank you that you can be trusted with our lives and with the big things of this world. God, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are in control and that you are all seeing. We thank you that no sin goes unseen in your life, in, in your presence. God, I pray that for those of us that have been hurt and wronged at different times in our life, that you would give us the courage to trust that to you. That you would give us the courage to trust justice to you. Lord, that you would give us the courage to to let go and place our faith in you. God, I can't imagine what 70 years in Babylon must have felt like at times. As those that did evil were promoted time and time again. As those that did evil were, were the leaders of the nation. There had to have been so many times they said, God, where are you? God, we thank you that we can know that you are present and you are with us. Would you help us to know that and feel that and trust our lives to you? So, God, I pray that as we take a few minutes here to, to pray to you, Lord, that you would speak in our lives. That you would speak over us exactly what we need to hear. God, that we would have the courage to trust our lives and our future and our families and our eternity to you. God, we love you and we praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen.
Well, thank you again so much for being here today. Thank you for braving um, Wyoming today. Um, if you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a uh, welcome card somewhere in the vicinity of you. If you don't mind filling that out and placing it in the, the box on that back table, the wood box on the back table, we'd appreciate it. It's also where you place your tithes and offerings. You can consider this your church home. And then just a, a couple of announcements. Um, generally, we have a small group that meets here at the church from 6 to 7. You guys made it here once. We're not going to risk it with you making it here again. So just stay home tonight. Don't fall on the ice. Stay warm. Uh, and we will be back uh, next Sunday. And then uh, we have youth group and kids night here at the church that meets from 6 to 7. Um, we would love for you, at least from 6 to 7 on Wednesdays. I don't know if I said that. But we would love for you to join us for that. If you got questions about that, you can see me or you can talk to Mr. Uh, Justin about youth group. Uh, and then lastly, the March-April Children's Church nursery schedule is on that back table. Um, so if you're on there, grab that and figure out which week you're on there. And uh, you know, we appreciate you for serving that way. If you're not on there and would like to be uh, serving that role, talk to Melody and she'd love to get you on there. Uh, thank you so much for being here this week. Stay safe. Stay safe in the parking lot, please. <laughs> and uh, we will see you again next week. Mm -hmm.